0: Hey there, stackers. It's Monday, and you know what that means. Time OG for another Navy Federal shout out to our troops. It might be my favorite
2: part of the week, saluting our troops. Especially on the heels of another weekend of me seeing Top Gun. For the 14th time now? I might have seen it three times.
0: Wow. wow. That's quite an endorsement. Well, we obviously endorse the men and women who are serving our country. The real so,
2: Top Guns.
0: Yeah, absolutely. On behalf of The men and women at Navy Federal Credit Union and the Men and Women Making Podcast here in the basement. A shout out to those of you serving our country. Let's go stack some Benjamins together.
3: (laughs) But out of that, a new holiday was born a festivus for the rest of us.
1: Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and are you sick of working for the man? I'll tell you, things have gotten a lot more corporate down here in the basement. I mean, our naps have been cut down to 45 minutes, and they've totally eliminated juice boxes. I am so ready to cash out. To show you how, we welcome the authors of Cashing Out and the Rich and Regular blog, Julian and Kirsten Saunders. For our TikTok Minute, we'll show you the magic of compounding interest, and in our headlines, we'll ask the question, how resilient have you been during inflation? I feel about as resilient as Joe's mom's underwear elastic, which is to say, not very. Oh, relax, Joe, it was hanging on the line, I just saw it out there. Plus, we'll throw out the Haven Lifeline to AJ, who has a question about timing the real estate market. And then we'll have our regular trivia segment. <laughs> and now, two guys who want to help you get rich and are anything but regular Joe and O. G-G-G-G-G.
0: Hey there, stackers, and a happy Monday to you. I am Joe Salci. Hi, average Joe Money on Twitter, ready to help you get ready for another week. You found your money peeps, so sit back, relax. And get ready to enjoy an hour of fun with the guy sitting across the table from me and uh, the dude sitting at the end of the table with me and I, Mr. OG and Mom's Neighbor Doug. How are you guys? What's happening? It's Hi! A, it's an, it's an it's audio movie. podcast, Doug. Doug waves oh, on the wave. audio podcast. Hi, <laughs> Joe! He caught a fish this big.
1: He's uh, this <laughs> tall.
0: Yeah. We got a great show, though. This show is tall today because... Uh, Julian and Kirsten Saunders, as Doug so eloquently said just a minute ago, joining us. And if you've never heard the team that is rich and regular, I can't wait for you to do this. They've got an awesome a video series where they go to different cities and they sit around with food. Uh, food, a little money talk could be a great time. Uh, before that, we've got Charlie Wise from TransUnion. But first, this episode sponsored by State Farm, You're going to get an extended 30-day free trial to try it out like I try out many different apps, and this one was sticky for me because, well, you'll see when you try out the 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash Benjamins, that's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash Benjamins for your extended 30-day free trial. All right, a lot to do, so let's jump right in.
2: Hello, darlings. And now, it's time for
3: your favorite part of the show, our Stacking Benjamins Headlines.
0: And in our headline today, TransUnion is out with their new study on identifying consumers' resiliency during inflationary times. How resilient have you been? How resilient have your neighbors been? And how resilient have other people been in and outside of your community? Well, guess what? We got the man himself, SVP at TransUnion with us, Charlie Wise, here to discuss the study. How are you, Charlie? Charlie?
4: I'm doing great, Joe. how are, How is how are things with you? <laughs>
0: they're they're trugging along. If I keep my voice, all right, life will be life will be pretty good. But let's dive Love into it. this. Why did you guys actually look at inflation at this? Time? I mean, I can imagine a little bit of why, but tell me about what went into this study.
4: Yeah, it's no surprise that it is the number one topic that our customers are talking about, lenders, banks, um, even the consumers that we talk to. TransUnion recently did a survey of consumers where we asked them their, their top concerns across a range of things. 63% of consumers say that inflation is their number one or number two worry right now. That's that's enormous. So we really wanted to understand this phenomenon because there's this concern or this this belief or expectation that as prices rise, if, as consumers have to spend more and more of their paychecks on everyday living expenses, that they can get squeezed. And some of them may have to make some hard choices about the bills they pay and the bills they're not able to pay and what that means for things like credit cards and auto loans and personal loans. And so TransUnion, from a credit perspective, wanted to understand, is everyone in trouble? Is a fraction of the population in trouble? How can lenders and others better understand who seems to be more able to absorb the impact of inflation? And who is really going to have more difficulty in meeting their obligations?
0: It doesn't surprise me that it's it's right at the top, right, Charlie? I mean, it's every time I go to the gas pump, I'm reminded. Holy moly, things are things are tight right now. But have you guys studied this before in the past? Is did you have any sense of like it used to be number eight or number six, and it's risen to number one?
4: Honestly. Nobody was talking about inflation yeah, right, a year ago. Right. It was this little, you know, maybe you saw little puffy clouds on the horizon and that was about it. And n- nobody realized that we were going to be in a hurricane um, a year later, but that's kind of where we are, which is, you know, I think you're, you gave one of the prime examples that consumers are facing right now that a household that was spending perhaps 75 bucks a week to fill up their, their cars a year ago. Now maybe he's spending one hundred and fifty dollars a week, and that you know that translates three hundred dollars a month. There's a lot of consumers that are really struggling with coming up with an additional three hundred dollars a month. Not to mention what it costs you for groceries or for rising rent or for you know your energy bills or everything else that that's all been impacted. We didn't look at inflation four or five years ago because. We're doing just a fine job of chugging along. It's, you know, two to 3% inflation target rate. So it's only when. This starts to become a topic that we start to say, wow, is this something that we need to worry about? Because we haven't seen inflation at these levels since 1981. Yeah. I sure wasn't looking at a whole lot of uh, research <laughs> studies back in 1981. Right.
0: No, <laughs> unless it was about my favorite rock band at that time.
4: <laughs> maybe maybe, th-
0: maybe, that was it. My favorite middle school uh, crush or something. I don't know. But, but, but let's dive into some of this because it, it seems clear from some of the data that I have that you guys provided us with that uh, some borrowers are really being hit harder than others already in the early days here of inflation.
4: Yes. So when we looked at doing some background on this, we, we want to understand where consumers coming from, what really seems to be the impact across how they're using credit. So we spent some time in this looking at what happened throughout the pandemic and what has happened in more recent months. And as you may be aware, early months of the pandemic, we saw this collapse in consumer borrowing where consumers were paying down their credit cards at a huge rate you know they, they dropped by roughly a third in, uh, in aggregate balances through 2020 as consumers were getting enhanced unemployment benefits they were getting a trillion and a half dollars in direct payments from the government and they weren't spending they were at home not able to go to restaurants, not able to travel, not able to spend money on the things they were spending it on before. So they had all this excess liquidity and nothing to spend it on. So what did they do? They put it in savings accounts, or in many cases, they paid down their credit cards and they didn't borrow more. So we saw a collapse in credit card balances, collapse in unsecured personal loans, which was a big source of borrowing for many consumers. And so that really drove average balances to decline all the way through- second quarter of 2021.
0: It was kind of like, Charlie, what uh, mom always says, which is, you know, when life gives you lemons, making lemonade, like what a horrible time, but people were putting their money to good use.
4: They were. I mean, it was great for the consumer balance sheet. Consumers really deleveraged. They got themselves in many cases out of debt. They they really improved their balance sheets. We saw this because the median credit score for consumers Took off during this period because consumers were, thanks to a lot of this excess liquidity as well as forbearance programs, they weren't going bad on their obligations. They were taking care of the credit they had, as well as their utilization was way down. So delinquencies. Utilization, those are the two biggest contributors to your credit scores. People's credit scores took off. So the consumer was looking great. The consumer was performing great. Delinquencies were at all-time lows for a lot of products. So everything was was great until we started to see this little inflection point around second quarter of 2021. And guess what? That's the first quarter that we saw inflation go from about 2% up to 56 oh, yeah. on its way up to the 8.5% that we saw in the first quarter of, uh, of this year. As soon as prices started to rise, as soon as we saw gas prices start to rise, rents start to go up, the supply chain things really hitting the things that consumers are buying, that's when we started to see coincidentally – That time when the balances started to rise on credit cards, on on unsecured personal loans. And last year was frankly a banner year for new originations for cards and personal loans. Uh Consumers were now seeking credit again.
0: Boy, that's—I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, though. Because if we look at that with the lens that you're talking about with inflation, Charlie, I mean, people originating new credit cards, looking for new credit lines, might mean might be the first, you know, the first little problem in something that we may be seeing more of in the future, which is delinquencies then go up because people need more credit.
4: So, if you want to talk canary in the coal mine, I mean, credit data really can give you an indication of how consumers what they're feeling, what they're using credit for, and how they're performing on it. So a lot of those those changes we start to see coincidentally around that time. And yes, it was also first quarter of 2021 was the last big wave of the stimulus payments that went out. So consumers were no longer getting those excess checks around third quarters when the enhanced unemployment benefits really started to expire. The good news is we saw a lot of positives in the job market. We saw unemployment basically back to pre-pandemic levels. And we started to see around the same time that inflation was taking off, we started to see material increases in consumers' incomes and many cases the labor shortage. That's around the time that we were starting to see two open positions for every unemployed person. There was this huge need for labor that really benefited a lot of consumers, but none more so than those at the the lower end of the income spectrum. Those that had been constrained by that minimum wage job, well- There weren't many minimum wage jobs anymore because employers had to pay a lot more than minimum wage to get people off the sidelines and to attract workers in to keep their doors open, to keep their lights on. And so and so a lot of things started happening all around that same time. And it's really difficult to kind of isolate inflation absent all these other things because it was a very complex stew that was cooking around that time. But really what we did see is around that second quarter of last year, consumers coming back into credit markets in a big way. Yes, they were borrowing a lot more for mortgages and auto loans because you had to pay so much more for them, but really that, they you know, there wasn't a volume question. That was an amount question. Yeah. Personal loans, credit cards, that's where consumers were saying, I need new or better credit cards. I need new or better personal loans to pay off now some of those increasing balances on my credit cards.
0: So are we seeing then differences now with, uh, between non-prime and prime borrowers then, Charlie?
4: Both of those borrowers had done really well through the pandemic. Some of the differences, though, that we see are that below prime borrowers have, in many cases, um, started to see delinquencies tick up. They're still on credit cards, on personal loans, on mortgages. I mean, mortgage, there's not an issue. You know, their mortgages continue to do just fine. People are doing a great job of taking care of their homes because they got lots and lots of equity tied up in those homes right now. They're not going to let the bank come and take that house away from them with all that sweet equity they've built up. But unsecured borrowing, credit cards, personal loans, that's where we started to see some upticks in those delinquencies. And again, complex stew that we're dealing with here. To some extent, these are consumers that they're starting to increase their balances, so their payment amounts went up, and inflation was taking a bigger bite out of, uh, out of what was happening but we also saw incomes improving. Mm. But to some extent, when you look at the headline in delinquency numbers, this was merely a fact that lenders had pulled way back on originations to anybody but the best borrowers in 2020, early in the pandemic. They were saying, we're really worried that this thing is going to go in a bad direction. So we're just going to tighten up our lending standards. In 2021, as they saw delinquencies continue to drop, 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 They opened up the spigots. So in a lot of cases, this was them now making credit available to consumers that may have wanted it, but not be able to get access to it.
0: You're saying this is maybe more of a return to normalcy.
4: That's a lot of what we've seen right now. And so are we alarmed? Delinquencies are still, relative to where they were at the end of 2019, delinquencies on cards and unsecured personal loans are still in really good shape. We have seen some weakness in some of those recent originations because The access to credit has been opened up in a big way for, for riskier borrowers. I'll just say it bluntly. Like those, you know, riskier borrowers, they're riskier because they go bad at higher rates. That's expected. That's what they've always done. A subprime borrower is going to have a very different delinquency than a prime or super prime borrower. That's to be expected. Lenders price for that. Lenders have strategies to, to work through that. But you are seeing headline, headline delinquencies increase. Driven in a good part by the fact that riskier borrowers are now back in the market in a bigger way. We looked at separately at some data that said that in the third and fourth quarter of last year, more subprime credit cards were issued than have ever in our history in those in any quarters. Wow. so there was a lot a lot more riskier borrowers coming in, but they were doing what riskier borrowers do. They sometimes stumble when it comes to repayment.
0: if I'm the average person just, driving down the road, listening to this, Charlie, what's my big takeaway? What should I be taking away from this?
4: We we advocate, as we always have, that the key to using credit is to use it responsibly. You know, we're big advocates that credit can really be an enormous enabler, not just of getting you access to a credit card so you can go on vacation, but making sure that you can buy a home, making sure that you have reliable transportation to get to work, being able to borrow money to to start a business. But it starts with responsible borrowing. And we don't advocate that consumers take out credit for the sake of taking out credit, that consumers really understand and live within their means and make sure that, you know what, if, if things are tight right now, then increasing your borrowings on a credit card or a personal loan may not be the right way to go. Sometimes it's the only way to go. Sometimes you just simply, you know, need, yeah. n- you know, have a temporary fix. You need to make ends meet. But this idea that, yes, I may be feeling a little bit better because I got a raise at work um, because they're giving out raises to keep people there or to attract new workers. But that doesn't mean that we should go out and become profligate borrowers just because we're feeling a little bit more confident.
0: Yeah. Just because it's out there and I'm being mailed all of a sudden, all kinds of, all kinds of credit exactly. increase lines. Yeah, yeah,
4: Exactly.
0: If only, Charlie, I always wished if only there were a company that had some tools that our listeners could use that could help them be more responsible borrowers. If only there were such a place.
4: That's right. Well, TransUnion absolutely has a lot of resources on our consumer website. We've got a lot of information on just education around Credit scores, the fundamentals of of building a good credit score, of maintaining a good credit score, what responsible borrowing looks like, and um, you know, in many cases, consumers just don't even have an understanding. They think that this credit score is this arbitrary thing that's assigned to you, like a social security number, yeah, and I have yeah. no control over it. You absolutely do, but also knowing that if you want to buy a home, if you want to get a good rate on an auto loan, if you want to take advantage of all the things that credit offers. You got to have a good score. You got to have a good track record. You have to prove that you've done good things. And so we have a lot of resources around what it means to get credit for the first time, to build your credit score, to maintaining that. And in some cases, if you're getting into trouble, if you feel like you're you know, way out in front of your skis, how do you work with lenders to say – you know i may be overextended what can i do around this lenders are surprisingly accommodating particularly now on consumers coming to them in advance you know the first sign of trouble shouldn't be that you miss a payment you know mm-hmm. making a call there's a lot of accommodation programs even now that lenders have available to say hey my spouse just lost lost their job what can you do they're more than happy because they want to get their money back they don't want to be us, you know having collectors have to give you a call
0: Charlie, great advice. Thank you so much for hanging out and talking credit with us. We'll have links, by the way, to TransUnion and the study that Charlie talked about on our show notes page at StackyBenjamins.com. Thanks again, man.
4: Thank you, Joe. Good talking with you.
0: Big thanks to Charlie for stopping by. And oh, gee, Charlie's right on. This is the time because of inflation, these, these rising costs, if you don't have your budget in order it is a time when, oh, I might just apply for a little more credit to get me out of this little pinch. And you're the last one to know this isn't a little pinch. This is prices are up for good possibly, and your budget's not right on.
2: I was just reading an article in the Wall Street Journal this morning that was about uh, restaurants adding surcharges, inflation surcharges. You remember probably a couple of years ago, you were seeing people add uh, wellness fees to things because of COVID, right? Like, oh, I have to, you know, disinfect this table twice as much. It's like, really? You weren't disinfecting it every time already? Right. You know? <laughs> but now I got to pay for it? I mean, it was just I could an opportunity. actually do what the
0: health department advocated of already.
2: Yeah, maybe we wouldn't have this to begin with. But now there's a little bit of this going around uh, fuel surcharge fees and, infl- uh, you know, temporary inflation fee, and uh, people are reporting seeing these kitchen fee health and wellness fee uh, on their bills and it's starting to obviously have have, has some pressure on on the pricing so you've got to look at everything that you're spending money on and and decide whether or not uh you want to keep doing it right now i think
0: i don't know with this massive inflation that we've had it feels like it's on everything Good time to lock down your budget. I mean, Doug, what are you doing when it comes to massive inflation?
1: Ah, oh, like I I've been here before, Joe. This is old hat for me. I mean, I got all inflated one time, but you know, I just laid off the fast food and it went away. Oh, uh, gee, could be a strategy.
2: Yeah, yeah, don't go out to eat. Yeah, absolutely
0: solves solves that issue. Not sure that's exactly what he was talking about, but but we're in the ballpark.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, but Joe, isn't – um, I mean, don't they call inflation the silent killer like it just creeps up on you? It's
0: kind of sneaky. How do we know when it's coming? And isn't, and isn't that actually – Doug, I think you're on to something because they have called inflation like the silent retirement killer OG. Like people don't think about inflation normally. In fact, you know, Charlie talked about how a few years ago they didn't even – have inflation on their list of worries. And now it's the number one worry every family has, right? What's your number one worry? Inflation. Three years ago, didn't even make the list, but it's always been there. It's always been something that's been the silent killer.
2: And that's why when it comes to retirement planning, you have to have income that rises every year. Because if you have a portfolio that's largely interest or Or fixed income, you know, if your pension or Social Security, which obviously Social Security gets some inflation protection on it, but if your income is largely from fixed income, and something like this happens, you are not going to be able to keep up with it. Like this, this one year of ten percent increases, if this were it, puts you ten percent behind permanently. Now, increasing at you know the regular inflation rate, you know, so it, it happens all the time. Just think back. You know, I remember getting a gallon of milk for a dollar. My parents would send me down to the store and say, go get some milk and here's a dollar. And that would be enough to get milk. And now it's three and a half dollars or whatever it is, you know. So it's really hard to comprehend. But if you're 30 today, when you're 60, milk will be like 10 bucks a gallon. Wow. That can't possibly be true, (laughs) but it will. And then when you're 90, it'll be 30 bucks a gallon. Just prices will continue to rise. Generally, that's a good thing, but not at a big increase all at once.
1: I think you're saying, in this case, with over 8% inflation, it's silent and it's deadly? I mean, you see it at the gas pump. You see it with milk prices. It's actually not
0: even that silent right now. I, just, I don't think it's silent if people call it the number one. <laughs> so it's never... You get to Can't a certain
1: age, you can I'm never trying. trust a silent and deadly, huh? <laughs> it's everybody. the worst kind of inflation.
0: I think it might be a good place to leave it. Thanks to Charlie Wise from TransUnion for stopping by for tools. As he said, uh, hit our 201 newsletter, Benjamins.com slash 201. We'll do deeper dives there into inflation, into your credit, and more. And uh, on our show notes page at stackybegments.com, we'll have a link to uh, all the tools at TransUnion. Hey, it's time for our TikTok minute, the time when we point to a TikTok creator who's doing something amazing. And today's TikTok, is it amazing or is it air quotes amazing?
2: Uh, probably they're probably all, you know, air quotes amazing. I'm just going to go with well, that let's, forever so you don't have to ask me. <laughs> every, every, every
0: time. Well, today we're going to talk a little bit about life insurance. This guy has over two and a half million people following him on TikTok. And this is, uh, this is the advice he's giving them. You're 26 years old and you can save $500 a month. And you want to know where do I put my money for retirement? Inside the MPI Secure Compound
4: Interest account. Why? Because I get life insurance, no capital gains tax, guaranteed security against stock market risk. You know what's going on right now. 10% plus growth potential and tax-free retirement income. But none of that matters if it doesn't produce me the most retirement income. So let's play this out. $26,500 a month and you retire at 60. Inside the MPI Secure Compound Interest account, you're projected to have a tax-free spendable retirement income of $134,000 per year, every single year for the rest of your life. Inside the 401k Roth IRA, according to the 4% rule, a measly $50,000. Play that over 30 years of retirement, inside MPI, you're projected at $4 million of total spendable income. Inside the 401k Roth IRA, a low $1.5 million. That's a $2.5 million potential mistake by getting a Roth IRA, not on my watch.
0: If you want more information, send me a direct message. Wow. Unbelievable. This guy, he's like the the epitome of a used car salesman. (laughs) Two and a half million people follow that dude. And when oh my, my mentor early in my career said, beware charts and graphs, a lot of charting and graphing going on there, guys, that, uh, that's just ugly. I want to start off with the fear factor when he goes, hey, you also have downside protection about the stock market. A lot of downside going on right now, like just gives you the little bit of, hey, look at, we're going to protect against this thing that you're afraid of right now.
2: What a slime bag. And I hope he goes somewhere where it's hot and very sweaty for the rest of his eternity. We were talking,
0: OG, a few weeks ago about how a lot of the smart people on the internet don't talk because of compliance oversight. And that that doesn't just create a vacuum. People come in and fill that vacuum. And it's people like this dude. Like, how great is this when you can have more retirement not have as much stock market risk, and you get life insurance on top of it. It's
2: great. Yeah, it's fantastic. You don't get stock market risk because you don't get stock market gains. That's the that's the trade-off.
0: Which means, by the way, that projection that he talks about when it comes to insurance having more money, let's be clear, guys, that is never going to happen. That is not going to happen. OG, can you think of uh, any... W- w- what's the odds of that happening?
2: Well, I mean... I don't want to say never, because it really just depends on the cost of the insurance, right? Like if you have a ton of cash going into an insurance policy where the cost is very low because you're young and super healthy and you can dump tons and tons and tons of cash in and get ahead of that curve. Because the thing with insurance is that all insurance is priced the same whether you buy term insurance or whole life insurance or universal life insurance or variable universal life insurance or some combination index planning insurance, like all insurance is the same. It's age and your life expectancy and your health status and the death benefit. And that's how much it costs. And when you buy a permanent life insurance policy, what they do is they just forecast that. Let's say you buy it when you're 25 they forecast that and go, well, we think he's going to be dead by 91 statistically. So we're going to add all those up, divide by however many years that is, and then say, this is your premium today. So that it can be kind of the flat line of the premium, right? Because when you're 90, you can't be paying the same life insurance premium as a guy who's 25. It just doesn't make sense. So it has to be more. But how do they make it more? They make it, they make it so you can afford it because they make you pay the even amount the entire time. So in some cases, if you get a really great return and a really low cost and you front load that a ton, you could get ahead of that curve and have enough cash that it's that it's pay. But I'll tell you, 20. 24- but is it going to beat?
0: The, is it going to beat the Roth IRA by that
2: much, though? This, the amount that he's saying. I didn't hear the number, but, um, but- how could you have? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a joke. Yeah. He was selling micro machines <laughs> and life
1: insurance. 22% <laughs> guaranteed.
2: He was the micro machines guy. I, uh, some people get that joke. Um, <laughs> I, I can't see how it would. I mean, if you use the same assumptions and you go, this one has some cost associated with it, this one has zero cost associated with it, and I'm going to grow it at the same rate, which one's going to be more? Well, the one without the cost. It's just that simple that's why I don't understand how he thinks he can beat the roth ira that's the only that's the only well, way you have to change the assumptions. you have to change the the math inside of it and permanent life insurance has a place. We've talked about this before. every financial tool has a purpose that's how it's created. The problem is is when you get the the weird incentives, this guy and his company they make whatever your premium is, that's his commission for the first year so and then some probably. So, you know, if he's paying 500 bucks, if you're, you know, he's saying, hey, put 500 bucks a month into this, his commission's six grand. If you said, I'm going to make that commission 50 cents and everything else is the same, just like every other real financial person out there, uh, I guarantee he doesn't use this as a tool. I think there is a tool in this video, though. (laughs) You are not wrong. (laughs) And a special place and H-E double hockey sticks for this yokel.
0: (laughs) Horrible. Coming up next, if you ask me to list my top five favorite places on the internet when it comes to great money management discussions, it would be appearing on that list would be anything that this team does. They not only have the Rich and Regular blog, which has won multiple Plutus Awards in the independent financial voice space. Also, they have a wonderful video series called Money on the Table, where they go around the United States speaking with people about their money journeys now they have a new book out called cashing out there are a couple that got ahead by saying you know what i want to get rid of this nine to five and some live in somebody else's dream and we want to live our own just inspiring people really fun to hang out with i know you got to hang out with julian a little bit when we were in atlanta uh let's say hello to julian kirsten saunders in just a moment but before we get there doug I think you got some trivia for us, my friend.
1: Sure do, Joe. Hey there, stackers. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. I was just talking to Julian and Kirsten upstairs because, don't tell Joe, I'm kind of looking at my options. This place used to have that podcast startup feel, you know? I mean, there's not even mold in the basement anymore. We all used to stand around the water cooler bitching about our respiratory illnesses. It was like our own little team building exercise. There's no camaraderie in health got an HR department now, I am sure, it's Joe's mom yelling downstairs, quit being a creep, Doug, but I mean, still, still, it's like HR. Speaking of getting corporate, the post office got corporate in 1920 when they decided one item could no longer be sent via post. My question is, what piece of precious cargo was that? I'll be right back with an answer after I go tell the fin turn he can stop drilling the air holes in the box.
0: Oh, gee, home buying can be so much fun.
2: I say just only slightly tongue-in-cheek. It depends on what, what you're doing. I mean, the actual process of buying a house, kind of a PIA. Right. The actual buying a house, that's fun. Thrilling. Super fun. Yes. Moving into your new dream home,
0: that's fantastic. So if we can smooth it out, that's what we want to do, isn't it? That's right. Navy Federal Credit Unions here to help military members and their families tackle home ownership. They offer mortgage options with zero down payment, so you don't need to wait years to save. They offer mortgage options that don't require private mortgage insurance, PMI, so you'll save money each month. The members save $2,500 on average when they choose Navy Federal for their mortgage. With resources like Realty Plus, you can get an experienced real estate agent They're a top VA home lender. Learn more at NavyFederal.org. Insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.
1: Hey there, stackers, I'm Minion with an opinion, Joe's mom's neighbor Doug. According to History.com, post offices began accepting parcels over four pounds on January 1st, 1913. And in the same way you'd know there was a sign that says don't lick the turtles only because Joe went to visit an aquarium, they didn't quite have the experience yet to know what to ban. People mailed eggs, bricks, snakes, you name it. Between 1913 and 1915, about seven people mailed a certain something that was then banned in 1920. The longest trip these parcels took were 720 miles for a cost of 15 cents in stamps. So, what got banned to mail in 1920 by the post office? Your children! Looks like I gotta go change the Fintern's travel plans. And now, to help you make sure
0: you can afford those plane tickets... Julian and Kirsten Saunders. I'm super happy coming down the stairs to the basement. We've had Julian on before. I think Kirsten has ghosted us like every time (laughs) we've had an event, like she doesn't want to hang out with us. But we finally got her here. (laughs) Kirsten Saunders, Julian Saunders here. How are you guys?
5: We're good. Thanks for having us. I want to dive into
0: this. There's a disturbing statistic you guys talk about right at the beginning of your book. It's 2017 You saw a statistic about black wealth in America. Well, let's put it the right way. The lack of black wealth in America. Can you tell me about that?
6: Yeah. So we didn't initially see the study. What we saw was actually a article that was about the study. It was really alarming. and Basically, it was predicting that at this pace, given what the typical black family looked like, uh, that the median wealth of a black family was slated to be zero. And it wasn't surprising to me because I remember back in 2008 reading about how the housing crisis really led to just a complete decimation of black wealth because so much of the wealth was tied into real estate. And so then to see just a few years later as they were kind of accounting for the damage that the Great Recession did and uh, so many of these other factors, like it kind of, it was really heartbreaking. Now for us, we live in the city of Atlanta, which is a bit of a cluster of black wealth. Uh, and so we live in a bit of a bubble, but we've had the privilege, uh, both of us, to of, of traveling quite a bit on business uh, to pretty much all corners of the country and in some cases the world. And so we've, we've been able to see up close just the disparities, uh, not just in Atlanta, but everywhere else. And so it was a bit confirming uh, and heartbreaking, but rather than cry about it, we figured, how do we kind of take our talents, some of the things that we're good at and passionate about? and use that to contribute to turning the ship around.
0: I mean, you say black wealth being zero, let's be clear. You mean it's finally going to get up to zero, right? I think it's, a, by and large, negative
6: numbers across the board. Yeah, depending on where you are. I mean, uh, gosh, I think even just a couple of years ago, there was a, another article that spoke about black wealth. And, and actually, I remember speaking about this at Camp Five, and I'm wearing the shirt um, as I'm talking about it, but... Um, you know, in Boston, I think they did the numbers and said that the median black wealth in the city of Boston was $8. Yeah. Right. And, and I remember a lot of the attendees kind of feeling like it was a typo on on my screen. Yeah. Um, and, and again, I didn't, you know, bring that up to make anyone feel bad, but I do think that there's a tendency to, you know, part of it is just American culture. We want to look at the bright side. We really want to focus on the future. And, and that's part of what makes us who we are. But again, as, as as members of this other culture, this component of the broader American fabric, we wanted to do our part to, to lead uh, and to inspire and to be a lighthouse because we felt like we stumbled upon something with, with respect to the FIRE movement that could be really, really helpful to the black community. But the message just was not breaking through. Right. And so we've been trying our best to uh, to do that uh, for the last couple of years.
0: I got super excited though, because you went from these horrible statistics that put just a pit in my stomach to, you know what, you can change, like people can change. And you tell the personal story about getting a call, I think it was Julian, about your mom and about her health. And it wasn't
6: good. Yeah, it's one of those calls that I think anyone who has an aging parent that they're really thinking about, like, you just never forget it. Right. And for me, it's actually haunting because every time you see that number pop up, it's like, oh, gosh, is this another one? Um, But yeah, it was pretty much a health scare for her. Right around that same time, Kirsten's father had a health scare as well. And so we were dealing with that uh, in the early years of the pandemic, even while we were writing this book. But uh, they were both able to turn that around and fight through both of those situations and come out whole on the other side. And uh, we just decided to use that as a springboard because, you know, not to be alarmist, but we've always thought of like debt as a bit of a, a cancer, right? Like if you told someone that, hey, I had cancer, I mean, for most people, especially those that come from a strong family circle, they've got healthy relationships, like people are rallying. People are going out of their way to say, "Oh my gosh, like we're gonna fight this thing. We're gonna get you back. We're gonna get you healthy. Do you need me to cook for you? I'm gonna take you to, to your appointments to make sure that you don't have to worry about stressing yourself." Yet we kind of casually ignore like the perils of debt, right? Like it's or just like the erosion of wealth or any of those yeah, things. We don't yeah. we don't treat it with the same level of tenacity. So we really wanted to jump on top of that. And again, it's really just a matter of relating to people, meeting them where they are and say, Hey, like, why do we, why do we do this over here? But we ignore these things over here. Let's talk about that. And how do we sort of change the way that we think so that we can hopefully get uh, some better outcomes.
0: It's funny how you talk about how they were able to, to both of them bring on healthier ways and you guys relating that to money. It's funny. I was listening to a guy, it's been a long time ago now, Dr. Dean Adele used to be a doctor on the radio for a long time, had a great radio show and he talked about just the way that you phrase things and the people you surround yourself with. They did this statistic, and I'm not going to know the numbers. But if the doctor came in the room and said, listen, Kirsten, there is a 90% chance you're going to die. You will probably die. But if, if the doctor, if she or he phrased it, there's a 10% chance you're going to live you will put yourself in that 10% and the number like doubled, like there was a much bigger chance that you would live. And I feel like you're the doctors, which is what I think you guys are in this book is kind of like the, the, the money doctors for a lot of people out there. Just getting this, this attitude change is a big part of winning.
5: Yeah. I think it boils down to belief. It boils down to the fact that we're socialized to believe doctors. We believe in their expertise. We believe in their prescriptions and their diagnosis. And so when they tell you something, if they tell you, like they told my dad, this is my favorite type of cancer, this is totally beatable. If you do your job. My favorite favorite type (laughs) of cancer. (laughs) Right. That's an oncologist joke. (laughs) Right.
0: That's like saying my favorite kind of lima bean. Like they all suck, but that's my favorite one. That's my
5: favorite one. So it gave him this little (laughs) bit of optimism. And and She flat out told him, if you do your job, I'll do mine. And his job was to stay hydrated, to eat food, take his medicine, go to treatment. And that's what he did. And the same is true with financial troubles. If you do your job, which is to spend less than you make, which is to invest regularly and consistently, then the market will do its job, which is to make you rich and allow you to retire. And so I think it's just kind of using that bridge, that, that metaphor as a bridge to help people realize that when it comes to finances, almost everything is figure outable. You just have to change the beliefs that you already have into ones that are more productive for you.
0: And, and to be clear, Kirsten, you're not saying you need to be a cheerleader, happy-go-lucky all the time. Like you point this out in the books, there's times when you got to put your foot down and you sometimes got to get a little mean.
5: Yeah. Yeah. We, we call it the second half of the book, the daily struggle. Like it's part two of the book is the daily struggle because it's not all happy-go-lucky. You do bump against interpersonal conflicts and even personal conflicts. You do have to at some points, make a trade-off between the things that you're used to doing, the things that you enjoy doing, and the things that you need to do for your future self to have a comfortable life. And we talk about all of that because it's important to give people that sneak preview to say, look, it's not going to be as simple as I've just admitted, like, you know, an apple a day. Like, there is going to be some (laughs) side effects of these decisions that you make. But if you know about them in advance, if you can build a community that supports you, you can get through them and at the other side of it you'll look back and probably laugh like we do mm-hmm. <laughs> at some of the things that we used to that we used to do.
0: Well, I'm glad you said that because there was a time I know that the two of you weren't laughing and I'd love to give some advice to couples out there, maybe young couples. You two right, though we met at the beginning of our professional heights, we were both ill equipped to navigate managing money, relationships and our careers at the time. In fact, our very first conversation about money led to our first argument and ultimately a breakup. Like, how did you get, what was the argument about and how did you navigate that and get back together and get on the same page?
6: Yeah, so as a married man now for over seven years, I know to just answer that question by saying it was my fault, and it was right?
5: to be clear. I just start the conversation there. Go ahead and um,
6: apologize again. But in, in, <laughs>
0: why am I feeling why am I feeling the heat of Cheryl right here on my side? She's not even here, and I feel it.
5: Yeah, I got you, Cheryl.
6: <laughs> but no, we we decided to take a vacation uh, pretty early on in our relationship, and so we ended up uh, traveling to Panama and we'd used a bunch of points to help offset some of the cost. But when we got back, I was like ready to jump back into, all right, let's, let's start adjusting some of the other things, right? Let's start cutting back here. We're not going to go out at the same rate that we were before because a lot of the money that we need to pay off this vacation, you know, it has to come from some of these other sort of discretionary activities that we do. And, um, Dating. Meanwhile. <laughs> has to come
5: from dating. <laughs> she,
6: she viewed it completely different. We need to date less.
5: Yeah, that was the argument.
6: It wasn't Discretionary date Discretionary activities last, or that we it do. It doesn't mean that we, we don't have to go to the same night's nice restaurants after we just spent like a couple thousand dollars, right?
5: Look at him being rational. Yeah. I was, I was not there. I wanted to keep the party going. And it's funny, we just got back from Disney and my son has the same gene, like we got back from Disney and he expected like, all right, where are we going now? Like, let's go, let's stay out. Let's go to the park. And it was like, son, (laughs) it's time to rest and recover. I saw your pictures and I'm with him and you, Kirsten, like, I can't believe
0: how happy I get giving 18 bags of money to the mouse.
5: I know. You know what I mean?
0: I'm like, this is crazy, stupid, expensive. And I, oh my God, look, give me more. Please give me more.
6: (laughs) Yeah. So so we get back from the trip and, um, you know, I'm cutting back. She's ready to keep turning things up. And it just sort of led to, like, some weird tension. And then finally I kind of confronted her and was like, look, here's the deal. Like, I've got these big dreams, you know. I I didn't want to interrupt, like, my, my debt payoff plan. I didn't want to interrupt my investment plans or my ambitions to buy a property. Like, I had all of these things in my mind. And I was factoring that into pretty much every single swipe. And uh, she had no understanding of that, uh, which was fine, but that led to a conflict, and I ultimately told her that, you know, if I knew that she had credit card debt, which I didn't know at the time, and I learned as a result of that conversation and that tension, and I pretty much told her that if I knew she had credit card debt, I wouldn't have dated her. And um, it it was a horrible thing to say. I'm glad, you know, we were able to heal from that, but... These are not endearing statements. I had a
0: a mentor once, Julian, who said I needed to put some velvet on my hammer sometimes,
6: and maybe... (laughs) Maybe you needed a little velvet on your hammer as well. I'm definitely going to steal that. I'm definitely stealing that. Um, So kudos to that guy. Um, But, you know, the the, the positive side is that it forced us to have a conversation about money early on in our relationship. It also forced us to look backwards to think why we, uh, how did we get to where we were as individuals? How did I come to have such strong beliefs about debt to the point where I would place this strong judgment and discard something that I knew was great all because she had credit card debt without even understanding like what the underlying situation was. And similarly, she had to do some of her work to figure out, well, how did I get into this hole to begin with? Like, what am I doing wrong? And what does this mean about, you know, some of my habits or the type of life that I want to live in the future? And so we combined forces and stories, did the work individually, came back together and learned a lot about each other in the process.
0: But I love this idea, Kirsten, just like your doctors of kind of these blunt but respectful conversations with each other.
5: Yeah, yeah, That we need to bring that back. You know, when we started Rich and Regular, our goal was to inspire better conversations about money, which are two-way conversations. It's not you just being told what to do and then expecting it to magically work. It's a relationship between you and the person that you may get financial advice from or even just your circumstances as you're tackling these financial goals, but the the ability to be blunt and candid and honest and say, you know what, I don't think this is going to end well for you mm-hmm. until you ch- unless you change something, is is more what we need than you know talking around a subject and just focusing on education, defining a 401k a hundred times instead of saying like, look, if you don't do this, there's no mortgage you can take out in retirement to help you spend the rest of your life, you know, comfortably like you can bet on social security or you can make sure that you have a plan to live off of when you're not able to work.
0: I want to stick with you for a second, Kirsten, because you write, well, and even before I get to that, you two found the fire movement. You're very well known in this financial independence, retire early space, but I really don't think you found it as much as I don't know, as I was reading your book, I never knew how much it felt like you were chased there. And let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, you wrote, but after witnessing countless talented black colleagues routinely passed up for promotions, we'd begun to believe meritocracy was as mythical as Santa Claus. I love that. We were, well, I don't love it. I hate it. But you know what I mean? The writing is The writing is very good. What it's expressing is horrible. We were perpetually overappreciated and underpaid. And so I felt like this path you could see Kirsten closing, and you went looking for a different path. Would, did I get that right?
5: That's exactly it. My plan all along was to outearn my spending habits. I thought I would just continue to be promoted because I was really good at that. I'm still good at that. I'm still good at making money. But Julian was the first person who said, "Okay, let's let's look. Let's look at the org charts. Let's look not just at our company, but look at all the companies that you think you could work for." and see how far you can go with a face like yours like with with brown skin as a woman as you know looking at all of my identities and it was a wake up call that i needed it was that blunt doctor talk that i needed to say actually you can respectfully aim to be a senior manager maybe a director maybe if you're really really good a vp but let's look at what they've given up along the way. Let's look at their lifestyle. Is that the lifestyle you want? You want to be on the road 85% of the time? You don't want to have time to enjoy your family and sleep in? Like it was the it was the wake-up call that I needed and it made me realize that the problem that I was trying to solve individually was actually structural and systemic. And if that's the case, then like you need to have you can still aim for that, but you absolutely need to have a safety net and that's what FIRE gave me. It gave me the the plan or the guide to build a safety net so that if my other plan didn't work out, I wouldn't be completely devastated.
0: Well, to your point, Kirsten, you know, as we're recording this, I woke up this morning to lots of accolades because Melody Hobson from Ariel Investments, who is uh, very much a leading figure in the investment space and a, a woman of color. Uh, everybody's applauding that she's part of a new ownership group for the Denver Broncos. On one hand, hooray, that's great. On the other hand, I go, it's 20 frickin' 22. Like why are we why are we high fiving ourselves because we have one black woman one. as an owner of an NFL football team?
5: Yeah, so. and th- that gets to the heart of what we mean by overappreciated. You get a lot of accolades for being the first, but nobody acknowledges that you're also the only in 2022. Like yeah. how how are you the only? And it's interesting that you bring her up because when we were thinking about even when we were thinking about blurbs for the book, like endorsements what black business figurehead could we use to say like, this is the book. And it was like, we came up with like three or four of them and they're massively busy because there are only three or four of them. It was right. Melody Hobson is Damon John. Like we couldn't think of anybody that wasn't on freaking shark tank or married to or, or leading a, a large, you know, investment company. It was just, it, there's a whole lot of talent in the middle that just does not get the praise or the chances or the opportunity or even just the understanding to, to be an expert.
0: Well, you guys talk about that in the book, and I'm wondering who wrote this line about for black people, you write you're fed images that don't really resonate there. It's athletes and celebrities, and just they're so removed from the average person with a $8 net worth that it's hard to fathom how I get from here to there.
6: Yeah, I, I don't remember which who, which one of us wrote probably that either. Julian. It was probably it sounds like something that I would say, but that's also at the heart of why we decided to you know name our blog and our brand Rich and Regular, because there was this this natural intertwining between the two. Like you could only be rich. Like when we would talk to people, it was as if they only felt like to be rich, you had to be famous. Like it, mm-hmm. there was no in between. There was no black version of the millionaire next door. Um, They didn't know what that life looked like. And what we've learned because we're people who have a pretty wide, diverse set of friend groups and social groups, that especially like in white America, like that persona exists. It's thriving. We know exactly who that is. You mean like my uncle or my aunt? That persona doesn't exist in the black community. You know, there is no rich and regular. There is no, well, yeah, this is my uncle. They're doing really, really well. What they do, like, I don't know what they did, right? It's like if they're doing well, it's like, oh, Yeah, well, you know, he's a you know head of this company, or he's the person that played for this sports team, or he's a major, you know, entertainer or something like that.
5: It's like the Chris Rock joke about his neighborhood where he's like (laughs) do you know it? Yes.
6: She's gonna mess it up. (laughs) I am gonna mess it up. Chris Rock has this awesome joke where he's talking about like himself being like one of this this massively popular comedian, and this is at the height of, of his career. And he says, yeah, meanwhile, my neighbor is a dentist. You know what I mean? <laughs> He's a dentist. He was like, I've worked like, my ass off to get to where I am. Tons of movies and all these things. My neighbor's a dentist, right? Like, we don't have very many examples of that. I mean, we've come to learn, like, that is so, so important. And so that in tandem with the idea of Rich and Regular and the message behind the book, we're really just trying to show that there is an alternative anti-excellence, anti-extraordinary path to living an amazing life that is actually attainable for everyday Americans.
0: So you go out you're you're then because of that, because of that lack of a path forward, you discover the fire community are really kind of are like I said, I think kind of, of kind of forced that way if you're gonna find a different path. But the fire movement, you know, we talk about things not looking like you. The fire movement you write didn't look like
6: you <laughs> no, it didn't, but again, like I guess one of the other benefits of working in corporate environments is that it's a predominantly white space uh, for the most part, and so we were accustomed to that um even though we were part of the three to four percent of you know managers and you know leaders in corporate America that were people of color, so we have that benefit of being able to identify and 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 not feeling uncomfortable. But that was also part of, of the insights, which is why we wanted to uh, sort of build our own brand is because we knew that most people didn't have that benefit. They didn't have that familiarity or that ability to walk into those spaces and still feel confident. Mm-hmm. But that was
0: my uh, question, Julian, is not to interrupt you, but why, but I guess I did. What, what is the Why don't more people look like you in the FIRE movement?
6: I think there are a number of reasons for it. But one of the bigger reasons that we felt that we could actually solve for was because it just doesn't look like a comfortable space. You got to think about it like a pool. Like you, you, you show up at the pool and and Joe, I'm just going to I'm not going to call you out here, but I'm going to say if you showed up to a pool and there were 100 black people in the pool, <laughs> You probably feel... Already pretty,
5: playing a game. You probably feel
6: a little awkward. Like, you <laughs> might get you might get in, but it's like, oh, this is weird, <laughs> you know? And I just think that that's just who we are, and that's where we are. And I think that's how a lot of people see this movement, right? If it looks like me, I'm going to feel a lot more comfortable. Exactly. That's just who we are. Or and, even
5: if and it there's doesn't... just one person kind of waving you in and saying, come on, join mm-hmm. my team, like, stand right here. When the ball comes your way, hit it. Like, even just a, a welcome, like... Yes, you can be here. Yes, I understand. You may not understand the rules or you might have an opinion that's different, but like, it's welcome here. You'll find your space. And at the time when we found the FIRE movement, it was very much uh, (laughs) cult-like. It was kind of anonymous where it was like these personas, but like we didn't know the people behind them. It wasn't until we went to an in-person event, FinCon was our first event that we went to, um, went to an in-person event and actually got to meet the faces behind these names that we knew online. And it was like, oh, there's a person out there <laughs> like living a life that's different than what I imagined.
6: But I also think it's important not to obsess on the differences between like black and white. And yeah. really look at it more so in terms of culture. Yes. Right? Like yeah. it's a, yeah. It was a culture shock. It, yeah. I'm not suggesting that you see black people in the pool and you run in the other direction what you're seeing is a thriving culture, yes. right? That may be unfamiliar. Correct. And it's like, oh, well, I don't understand this music. I don't understand the sense of humor. I don't yes. understand uh, the, the the fashion or the clothing styles or any of the those acronyms. things, right? The acronyms. The acronym use. And so those are the things that make it seem uncomfortable. And so what we realized was that culture and our understanding of culture and our ability to digest and translate that culture was going to be the adhesive that the community needed. Right. It, it was like almost like a chocolate covered coating. Right. It was like a thing that made people say, Oh, that looks delicious. And, then, and you buy it on the inside and it's like, ah, it's a little weird, but it's, it's really no, good. It's too like much it. coconut. Some <laughs> weird jelly in there. I don't, I don't know why, but but it's good.
0: <laughs> my, my, you know, this has been a problem that I've had and I'm, I'm glad you talk about the culture because I understand that we need a culture to identify ourselves and show how we are a unit, but I also think that whole thing Julian's kind of exclusionary. The you know the terminology of coast fi, fat fi. I'm like, we got to stop using these terms if we want more people to embrace this culture because people don't understand it. I'm like, stop it. Like you know why why the hell do we call it a Roth IRA? Like seriously, (laughs) or a or a 401k when in Canada. In Canada, they call it a tax-free savings account. Holy
5: crap, that's what it is!
0: In the U.S., we can't do that. We got to confuse the hell out of all of us. Yes,
5: yeah. We talk about that a little in the book. It's intentional, and it creates a lot of confusion. And we have to explain. We literally explain to people. You may never feel like an expert because of that. Do it anyway. You don't have to be an expert in electricity to turn your lights on every day. Like just know that it works know that this is the way that it happens like obviously build enough expertise to not get taken advantage of but you don't have to pretend that you ultimately have to like teach this in a class like just know that this is the plan and and do it do it scared
0: would you advise people you said you got much more comfortable when you went to the in-person events. Would you advise people to go to the campfires to economy to those things?
5: Yeah, we in our chapter about community we we advise people that the best method is to start digitally, build that that footprint digitally, tweak the algorithm to keep recommending new creators, but then leave your house, go to a meetup, go to a local meetup, go to a book signing, go to a conference. Even just reach out to a creator and ask if they want coffee. Like anything to meet people in real life will help you add context to the stuff that you see online.
6: Sorry. uh, Go ahead. I was just going to say it also just makes this process so like less lonely.
5: Yes. Right.
6: Because it can be such a lonely experience. And I think it's natural for people to say, oh my gosh, I found this thing. And they run right back to their corners. They want to share it with the people that are closest to them, with the people that are most familiar with them. And those people may not necessarily relate or even be interested, even though this is something that they could use or even need. Uh, They just may not be ready for that kind of thing or even interested. And that can be very uh, demotivating. And so it's really, really important to find that community. I personally think it's like the secret sauce is is. to just find other people that you can share ideas with, gain perspective from. Some of these people could be a little bit behind you. Some of them could be a little bit ahead of you or even way further ahead than you are, but it makes it real, right? It's one thing to sort of just watch something or listen to a podcast. It's another thing to have shared a beer with someone who can tell you, oh, well, wait till you get here. This is exactly what you're going to experience. And so I think it's one of the best things that anyone can do.
0: Our longtime listeners are going to groan when they hear me say this, but for new listeners out there, I had no interest in running a marathon. When we moved to Texarkana, I fell in with a bunch of people that all ran marathons and now I've run 11 and it truly is those people that you surround yourself with that makes all the difference. So I, I love that chapter. Speaking of that, I think one of the chapters that the average person that I found really exciting, but the average person will say, you know what, this seems a little aggressive. You two talk about this 30 year career and let's not talk 30 year career. Let's talk 15 year career. Why 15-year why career when you talk about – we start off this interview you talk about people are struggling to just get to zero. Not like, no, 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 let's do it in half the time.
5: I think the most interesting part about the 15-year career is that people assume that when you complete it, you don't work again. Like We assume that at the end of it is just this retirement where you're no longer earning money, and that's not what we're suggesting at all. What we're suggesting is that you put a cap on this season of your life. Right? Whether you end your 15-year career and start another one, maybe you've always wanted to be a professor or a gym coach or gym coach. I don't even know what that is.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's where you got a bunch of gyms in a room and you're coaching them all. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
5: Not judging any dreams out there. But you can do, it's up to you to decide, but it's to give yourself a break because you don't get one. Once you graduate from high school or college, if you go on to extended education, You don't get a break until this elusive retirement date that happens when you're in your 60s. And what we know now from retirees is there is no idealized retirement. Most of them end up working or doing something meaningful anyway. So like, why not set the bar a little earlier in life and give yourself the opportunity to do that three or four times? I'm not 40 yet and I'm on my third career. So the idea of just rethinking what a career is and detaching it from that lifelong 40 year, 60 year timeline is what we're trying to do with the 15 year career.
6: I also think, with respect to that framework uh, that, we, that we're providing people, is that there's just very little downside to spending a concentrated period of time focusing on debt payoff while investing at a higher rate. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, like, there's just very little downside to that. Like, I, I've, I'm yet to meet someone who's like, man, what the hell am I going to do? with all this money. You know what I mean? (laughs) I've not met that person yet, but I've met a lot of people who are 15 years into their career and they're miserable and and they've got a home that they feel locked to, or they've got a quality of life in a social system. And they're trying to now figure out what do I do? Like, how do I earn like significantly more money overnight to help Fill the gap, right? And then we go, it goes right back to this like classic American optimism. We just so believe that we are going to be endlessly uh, resilient and excellent, and we're always going to bring the same level of expertise to the table. We're always going to be employable for the next 25 years. I'm going to be super consistent and I'm going to save 10 to 15%. At some point, we have to look and say, we wouldn't be in the retirement crisis that we're in, if these rules of thumb were actually reasonable, right? For a vast majority of people, they're not. Uh, And so we have to be willing to look at all of those things, critique all of those things and make adjustments. And so what we're proposing for people, not everyone, like we're specifically focused um, in our our book, we kind of outline three different groups, like people who are capable of doing this, right? Right. Some people have to earn more money to even start to think about these things. Doesn't mean you can't learn about it. But uh, those people who are upwardly mobile, we're asking them, to be a little less optimistic about their job security and more optimistic about what their money can do for them if it's invested appropriately.
0: Hmm. I love that message. There is so many, you know, I, I love the overall theme of the system is broken. There's a lot that bro- it's, that's broken, but you can get through this and you will get through this. It is it is so powerful. The book is called Cashing Out, Win the Wealth Game by Walking Away. Julian, great seeing you again. Kirsten, it's about damn time he got you down
6: here in the basement. <laughs>
5: she broke up the boys
6: club but it's all good i know (laughs) putting
5: flowers and posters on the wall throw pillows (laughs) throw (laughs) pillows in your chair
0: yeah good luck recuperating from disney guys and thank you for a job well done thank
5: thank you.
6: you man it was always great to catch
0: up
4: hi i'm david stein when i'm not talking to other people about money on money for the rest of us i'm stacking benjamin's
0: big thanks to julian and kirsten For stopping by just such an inspirational couple and uh, glad they could stop by and chat about building wealth. Hey, let's uh, let's throw out the Haven Lifeline OG and tackle some of life's most important questions. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency, they put what you value first, Doug.
1: Figuring out why they call it KY jelly if it's not made in Kentucky. OG. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to the next man up. Anybody No, hard pass Beeler. We need a, <laughs>
0: do we need to do a take two on that
3: <laughs> one? <laughs> yes. came, came,
0: came through actually it's your loved ones in your time. It says here, but if you want to sit with your spouse or your loved one debating the merits of KY jelly, uh, with that extra time, Doug, that would be <laughs> no,
1: I don't, Okay. I don't know if I'm that just, made I'm it just,
0: better. But. I'm just wondering how you use your how you how how you would use more time doing what you said. I'm just integrating, trying to riff on the stuff that you're talking about. I don't know. Uh whatever that is for you, what you don't want to be doing is filling out life insurance applications. Their application is simple, it's online, you get an instant coverage decision. Prices are affordable. It's term insurance, so they're not going to make any ludicrous claims, OG, about uh, how much money you will have in retirement. You know why you'll have a lot of money in retirement? Because you're not overpaying. You have insurance that you know is going to be there because they are backed by their parent company, Mass Mutual, which is more than 160 years old. Today, we're going to throw out the lifeline to AJ. Say hi, AJ. Hey, Joe and OG. It's AJ here from Seattle. You help me
3: with I want to say it was OG's words at barf when I was buying a riverfront property for an Airbnb in Idaho in 2020 during COVID. I ended up selling that property for about 270000 more what? in five months, and it did really well while I managed it as an Airbnb. But my question now is, I still have one property in North Idaho that we're renting. It's for 1700 a month. We bought it for 230000 it's worth about four hundred and fifty thousand now. My question is, at what time do you think is a good time to get out of it? Because we could sell it now and make a good two hundred twenty thousand on it. You know, we have to pay taxes, and then but we'll lose out um, the rental income. But we could invest that money someplace else. I was wondering what your thoughts would be on this.
0: AJ thanks so much for the question AJ uh, clearly walking outdoors while she's asking that and by the way good to hear your voice I remember uh, us meeting AJ OG when we were in Seattle for a meetup pre-COVID somewhere in the pre-COVID years BC before COVID (laughs) way back when yes we were young naive and there were no pandemics but let's dive into her question she's got this large capital gain on the second rental property What's the what's the timing? What does she think about the timing on uh, when to get out of it?
2: Well, just like any capital asset, the the longer that you hold it, the more likely it is to increase, right, over time. So, any time that you're going to sell it is the time that you would need the money for something else. So, if you feel like you should be diversified, you know, having one property in one state in one area uh, may seem a little. Under diversified to you, and you say, "Well, I want to, you know, diversify this." If you have a capital expense that you're trying to pay for, college or pay your house off, or some other type of expense that needs capital, that would be a time to sell it. Otherwise, if there's not a good reason, I don't know why you would just sell it just to sell it. Because anything else is just uh, you're just trying to do some market timing, right? You're just saying, yeah. "Well, I think this is a high price today, and I should sell it." Well. I mean, it'll be higher probably in 20 years. So why not? Yeah, deploy- The only
0: other reason I can think of to sell it is if there's something going on in that local community, maybe an ordinance just got passed, which isn't as friendly uh, to people in the area or, or whatever it might be. I mean, there might be some of those, but barring a problem with the property, I'm with you, OG. Why would you sell it until you need the money? Yeah. Or the diversification purpose. I mean, clearly that's, that is the Achilles heel of owning a single property. Great question, AJ. Thank you so much. Glad you wrote in. Good to hear your voice again. Hope you and your family are doing well. Uh, That's going to do it for today. Hey, we've got uh, just a couple more things before we say goodbye this week. I go back on the road next week to finish off this tour and man, it's going to be fun. I will be in Longmont, Colorado at Mr. Money Mustache headquarters. Carl Jensen, Mr. 1500 is going to interview me uh, while I'm there. That's going to be fun. That's next Tuesday. Wednesday, will be in Denver at a fantastic indie bookstore in town. Thursday, in Salt Lake. Friday, will be in Phoenix. And Sunday, finishing things off at uh, Barnes & Noble in Summerlin, uh, which is a suburb, of course, of uh, Las Vegas. So come see me, com slash stacked. If you're not here to hang out with other nerds, you're here because you need to get your money in a spot where it matches your dreams, head to stacking slash OG. That's a link to OG's team schedule. And we'll get you on their calendar, which is the first step in talking with them about how they can interface with you and your team to dream bigger about your goals. All right, that's going to do it for today. Doug, you got it from here, man. What should we have learned today?
1: So, what should we have learned today? First, take some advice from Kirsten and Julian. You can do big things with your time, life, and money if you form a plan instead of just taking what comes your way. Second, life insurance? Yeah, it's good for life insurance, not so much for investing. But the big lesson don't mail your children, people. That we even have to ban the practice Kind of says a lot about you Just do what I do Drop them off in the woods About four days walk from home So I can take a little weekend getaway Peacefully We didn't have the fancy mailman To carry us when I was young We walked Probably not a good idea, Doug Uh, Well, I get peace and quiet They get exercise Thanks to Julian and Kirsten Saunders of Rich and Regular for joining us today. Their book, Cashing Out, is available wherever rich people get their books. This show is the property of SB Podcasts, LLC, copyright 2022, and is created by Joe Salcihai. Our producer is Karen Repine. The show is written by the brilliant Paulette Perhatch, with help from Joe, me, and Doc G from the Earn and Invest Podcast. After you listen to our show, check out the 201 Deep Dives, written by our website manager and blog editor, Brooke Miller. You'll find the 411 on all things money at the 201. Just go to stackingbenjamins.com slash 201. Once we bottle up all this goodness, we ship it to our engineer, the amazing Steve Stewart. Steve helps the rest of our team sound nearly as good as I do right now.